I want to share with you this morning something that has been really helpful for me to understand. From the very onset of me uh, coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, I've, God has um, placed men in my life that have been committed to um, preaching the word and teaching the word with clarity. And I look back at the people that God has put in my life and I'm so incredibly thankful for each one of them. Each one of them has challenged me to not bring the agenda of what you're gonna say from the pulpit into the Bible. Each one has taught me to carefully and diligently study the scriptures and to tell people what the word of God means by what it says. And that's what I try to do. And I know that's what Andrew tries to do. We are imperfect sinners saved by grace, just like you. But you're in a place that is seeking to do that. This morning, the reason why this is so special to me is this is, I've entitled the sermon, uh, Bought with a Price. This is a communion message. Because if at the heart of what we're trying to do is get at the authorial intent, in other words, when you read the scriptures, you have to understand that we are a, a couple thousand years removed from the original writing of the New Testament. We live in a nation that is very much different from Middle Eastern ways. And we live in a place where we really, have to, we really do have to work hard to try to understand the historical background of certain things. And there's nothing different when it comes to communion. I want you to open up your scriptures this morning. If you have them, hold them up, because this is what I'm trying to point you to, right? Some of you guys are doing, oh, wow, it's, praise God for you people. But open that book up to John chapter 14. I'm going to read this passage, uh, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1, let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you will also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What powerful words. I mean, stop, just stop and think about what Jesus said. Some of us are still searching. Some of us are still searching for, if I just have this religion, if I have, um, if I just have this fellowship, if I have this social group, if I just do X, Y, and Z, that's what will bring me peace. But the message of the cross, the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel is about connecting with Jesus Christ, who is a person in reality. And what he just said to Thomas, he's God. That's not to be treaded on very lightly. This is the one whom the word became flesh and dwelt among people. And as he dwelt among people, he shared his life 
in a historical context of Jewish, predominantly Jewish, Palestinian people. And Jesus came into the midst of that culture that had already had certain uh, presuppositions, certain perceptions about communion. And that's what I wanna share with you this morning. As I wanna look at that place, what does it mean when Jesus says, cost, a covenant, constructing, and celebrating. We will seek to make the connection as disciples attempting to apply what the first century audience understood and what we can take away as we live in the 21st century. So let me begin by sharing with you a story. I'm gonna actually read something, and I just, if, if you can just try to tune into this, this is not on the screen. As we consider the historical context of Jesus' words in John chapter 14. This is taken from uh, Ray Vanderlyn, and I I encourage you guys, if if you want the fuller teaching, to to Google him and find out. Uh, He does this teaching when he's in Jerusalem, and his whole ministry has been about trying to figure out what it meant to be a disciple. But he shares these words. The setting in first century Galilee, the small community of Chorazin lives and what the Romans call insula. It was within that setting of this tightly knit community that a story between Reuben and Rachel's family unfolds. You see, Reuben has reached marrying age, and some discussion has begun among the insula. The family is all working in the insula one day, and the topic comes up. The rest of the insula is stirring the suggestions of the girls in the community. Several names are spouted off, Sarah, Rebecca, Zipporah, Rachel. Yes, Rachel, that was the name Reuben was hoping would be mentioned. Rachel, he grinned as her name was mentioned and Grandpa saw the look in his eyes. The family began to discuss what kind of girl Rachel was and what type of wife she would be. They recalled how her family attends the synagogue and lives righteously before God. As the family continued to discuss, Reuben was getting nervous. One can say Reuben was more nervous than Mike Tyson in the spelling bee contest. Think about it. Once the family discussion had died down from a loud den to a hum of conversation, Reuben's father, Joseph, announced that in In the morning, Reuben and he would depart to the neighboring town where Rachel's family lived and discuss the marriage with Rachel's father. The night spent in the insula sleeping room was restless for Reuben. He could only think about the next morning's journey and what awaited him. The morning finally arrived and Joseph and Reuben set off together to Rachel's insula. Upon arriving at Rachel's insula, They were greeted by her father and welcomed in. Reuben's father explained why they were there and began to discuss the prospect of Rachel marrying Reuben. Once they had decided that Reuben would make an acceptable husband, the negotiations began on the price that would be paid from Reuben's insula to Rachel's father for the loss of their daughter. When the negotiations were complete, Reuben took a cup of wine drank from it, and then offered it to Rachel. This symbolized the covenant that he was making. He said, this cup is the covenant, after which Rachel had taken a drink from her cup, 
Reuben told her, I love you as my bride, so I'll pay the bride price. I'll give up my life for you and go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And one day I will return and take you to be with me forever. Reuben and his father then left. As the months pass, Reuben is working on preparing a place as, at his insula. He began to build and continued until his father is satisfied with what he has built. Meanwhile, Rachel is waiting in expectation for her groom to come to her one day. Rachel's community is stirring with excitement as they anticipate Reuben coming for her. And Rachel now referred to as the one that is bought with a price. A high price had been paid for her by Reuben and his father, and the betrothal was considered very serious. When the day comes that Reuben's father is pleased with the bridal chamber, Reuben has prepared. They get ready for the wedding ceremony and feast. Reuben leaves with the groomsmen in the evening to take his bride. The groomsmen run ahead and sound the shofar to let everyone know that Reuben is coming to take Rachel unto himself. When Reuben arrives, he takes Rachel away with Rachel's father. His his father's head is turned. Off to the bridal chamber, they go, followed by the best man and the groomsmen. As Reuben and Rachel enter the wedding chamber to consummate their marriage, the best man stands guard outside the doorway. When the marriage has been consummated, Reuben peeks out the door and tells the best man, who then announces it to the crowd, and the feast begins, and they celebrate the union of the man and the wife for seven days. As I read that, what, come, what comes to your mind as we consider what we know in John 14? Let's break this down a little bit. I wanted to find some terms, because I was, I was using the word insula, I-N-S-U-L-A in there, and some of us um, maybe do not know what that is. But an insula is really a Latin word for island, but it it has a Roman background. It has to do with architecture, a block of group but separate buildings, or a single structure in ancient Rome and Ostia. The insulae were largely tenements providing economically practical housing where land values were high and population was dense. You guys may picture an insula 21st century like this. That is not what, I, <laughs> what the author has in mind at all. But if you had that in San Francisco, you could probably rent one of those out for like $14,000, right? But just a little side note, my wife, I really do believe she married me for my money. He's laughing. I actually lived in one of those not the whole thing, but I lived in one of those. So the running joke is, I lived in the same place where Erin's, her backyard shed had the same material. And I loved it. It was the happiest part of my life, living, living in there. But anyways, fast forward, enough jokes aside. If, if we're looking at an insula, this is probably more of a picture here. This is more of a picture of an insula. So just notice that the, the idea is, is that these places were built, they, they built on top of them. So... If they were preparing a place, the, the son would be paying the price to be preparing that place by building on top of it, and it's a very communal type living. So let's break this down, the story, and then we'll tie it into uh, what I want to do with communion towards the end. 
Let's look at the idea bought with a price. So let's, let's just look at kind of, maybe this is my commentary, and I wanna, I wanna draw out some words just kind of as pegs, things that I pulled from the story itself. There's the first thought, and it has to do with choosing. Choosing. Did you notice that when, when I read that story that Reuben was hoping that his insula would choose Rachel? Now, this is important as we're in Romans, as Andrew's taking us through the journey, because the question is always, did God choose us? Do we choose God? The battle of free will and God's sovereignty. There is a mystery here. There really is. And you can see it right here in, in the, the background of what's going on with the story. Reuben actually wants, there's a desire in his heart that he has a special bride in mind. Okay? So as, as, you're, as, you're, as I'm unfolding this, Keep that in mind. So after Reuben and his insula selected Rachel, Reuben's father would go with his son to Rachel's father so that he could explain the prospect of this son marrying Rachel. The second word I want to point out is the word cost. Note the cost. If both the fathers agreed that Reuben would make an acceptable husband, Negotiations began on the price that would be paid for Reuben's insula to Rachel's father for the loss of their daughter. There was a cost that was involved. You couldn't, this is very different from us, right? In, in the, the Western world where um, a lot of people are finding their brides on the internet nowadays. If you would have <laughs> told them that, they would have been like, what, what is going on? That, that was not part of their culture, still isn't in a lot of ways. But there was a cost that was involved. The third word that I want to point out is the idea of a covenant. So after the negotiations were complete, the newly engaged couple are seen practicing what looks very similar to what took place between Jesus and his disciples in John 14, 1 to 4. And we'll also look at 1 Corinthians um, as we do communion together. But Reuben is taking a cup, drinking from it, and offering it to Rachel. And Rachel receives the cup, takes a drink from the cup, and Reuben expresses words that are very familiar to the disciples of Jesus Christ. The fourth word that I want to point out is the idea of construction, constructing. Reuben conveys his love to Rachel as his bride and promises three things. First, he promises her that I'll give up my life for you. First promise. Second promise, I'll go to my father's house and prepare a place for you. And the third promise, one day I will return and take you to be with me forever. The last word I want to point out is the word celebrating. After Reuben goes to his father's house to prepare a place for his wife, his bride waits with eager expectation for his return. After Reuben's father is satisfied with the place that he has prepared for his wife, he returns to celebrate his wedding ceremony. So here's a different angle that I want you to, to see as far as summary. Oftentimes what I hear in, in our gospel explanations, or our gospel expl, exp, or, uh, invitations, is this idea that um, you know, you've got this need and there's a savior that wants to meet that need. 
right? And our whole entire uh, society, when I'm talking about the West, has been influenced by psychology where that is the basis and the presupposition is you're basically a good person. You're not the problem. In fact, what do you need right now? Do you need X? Well, Jesus will give you X. What do you need right now? Do you need Y? Well, Jesus will give you Y. What do you need right now? Do you need Z? Jesus will give you Z. And so people come to know Jesus Christ as being a, a, nothing more than a psychotherapist on high waiting to meet your needs. And I've seen that. And you know what? I preached that. It wasn't until I encountered Jesus and Mark, Dave knows, that's preaching verse by verse through the mission, that I started to see Jesus in a different light. I, did, I saw Jesus as not so much, uh, you know, he, he is giving invitations per se, but he's offering them himself. He's saying that this is what's going to happen. And, and in fact, when he got the crowds, it wasn't an, an opportunity for him to gain off of the, the crowd and the momentum. In fact, he would say things like in John 6 where he says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Or he'd say things like, I am the resurrection. I am, the, this is what killed him when he applied the messianic prophecy in Daniel 7 to himself, to the high priest. When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, in other words, I'm not, I'm not tiptoeing around who we are. Am I the Christ? Yes, I'm the Christ. I'm the Christ, the God, the Son that's coming on the clouds that are described in John chap, or Daniel chapter 7. And that was enough for the high priest to say, that's it. We don't need any other witnesses. Make no mistake about it that Jesus died for the statement of being God. That's why the high priest tore his garments, because it was blasphemy. But yet, we can get mixed up, can't we, with all the things that come along from good intention, so-called Christians that are saying that Jesus is less than God. He is not. Make no mistake about it. He is God. But what I want to challenge you on, and, and Andrew's been kind of preparing you for what I'm going to say, I don't think that this is going to be like, whoa, that's crazy, because he's been handling Romans very well, verse by verse. I think if I would have said what I'm going to say to you right now, um, before Romans was put forth, you may have a harder time. But think about this statement. In summary, I would, we could say that believers are simply a small part of a much larger divine plan. The Father, because of his love for the Son, determined before time began to choose a redeemed community that would praise the Son for all eternity. And the Son, because of his love for the Father, accepted this love gift from the Father, considering it precious to the point that he gave his life for it. The Son protects those whom the Father chose to give him, and promises to bring them to glory according to the predetermined plan of God. And that is a statement that is, is quoted from Steve Lawson's book. Just a different angle at the gospel. Do we benefit from Jesus' death on the cross? Absolutely. Did Jesus die for us on the cross? Absolutely. But you need to understand, in Christ's mind, he had his aim and his goal to please the Father. And because he was pleasing the Father, we benefit from that devotion to him. So let's look at now, let's kind of move into the practice of communion. The practice of communion. We're not doing these yet, but we're going we're gonna to lay some groundwork for, first. So the third point is, let's make some connections as disciples corporately as we look at communion. Point A, we were bought with a price. Do you understand that? 
We were bought with a price. That's why the song that uh, they sang before we came up here is so important. Because we are not worthless. In Christ, we are everything. Because we are the price that, that Jesus, Jesus paid a price, his own death, for his church. Don't ever forget that. When the devil whispers in your ear, you're not good enough, just, just preach the gospel to yourself. Say, you're, you're right about that. I am not good. There's no one good. There's no one righteous. There's no one understood. Thanks, God. Without Christ and his intervention for me, I would be nothing. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that he stepped in and he, he saved me. He opened up my eyes to the truth. He caused me to be born again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? When Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. As my, my father-in-law said that. I thought that was pretty good. We are bought with a price. The price that Jesus willingly paid for his bride cost him his very life. On the day, on the way to the cross, I love this. I love this. The, the words are recorded. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now what's the context here of Luke 9? The cross has not yet occurred. The cross has not yet happened. And why his disciples, and he's gathering them up, and he's teaching them, and as they're wavering back and forth trying to figure out who he is, make no doubt about it, Jesus is set. His eyes are fixed. When I used to have to work a cursed graveyard shift, <laughs> I used to have to get up in the morning, and I, I could tell you I didn't know what day it was sometimes. Like honestly. And you know how it is, you get up, you're trying to be careful because your wife is sleeping, you know, your kids are gently chucked into bed, you know, you've prayed with them, yeah, you've, you've done all that, and, and you get up in the morning, that, that thing goes off called the alarm, and you get up, and you're just stumbling, and we have to go down the stairs, and I have to make it to uh, the door. Now, when you're really, really tired, you're running into things all the time, right? But what, what I would lock in on was a little thing on the door that was called a peephole. It, sh- it shone enough light to where if I locked in on that thing, I can get to the door and grab my keys and go into the garage, okay? It's that focus that Jesus has here when he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He is so fixed on what's gonna happen there. Sure, is there temptations to, to go away from that? Absolutely there is. In John 12, 27, it says that, what shall I say? Jesus says, shall I have the Father remove his wrath from me from what's coming? Should I sidestep the cross? But he says, but for this purpose, I have come. Father, glorify your name. And that's what he's doing. He has his eyes set on Jerusalem because he's going to die a death there. That's what he came to do. He came to die for the Father, for us. Dying on a cross would not be an easy task for Jesus. He understood the payment that the Father required And there's my passage that I jumped on. Additionally, the author of Hebrews reminds us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Think about this. This is Jesus as the second Adam. This is Jesus living the human experience. Loud cries, tears, to him who was able to save him, that's the Father, The Father is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Glorifying the Father by paying the price for his bride would cost him 
his life. Now, I want you to think, we're going to do a fast survey here through what the gospel is, and I've got some key words that I want to hang on. I think that as you guys try to articulate the gospel yourselves, if you can take notes, we're going to have a class in January that are going to kind of teach some of the ins and outs, but for now, as we practice communion, as we prepare our hearts to come to the communion table, we want to make sure that you understand the gospel. You guys, I'm an observer, as I've been in churches, and I do observe. When communion starts, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know we don't mean for it to be, but it can kind of be like a ritual, like we forget what we're doing. And I don't want that to be the case here. I don't want that to be the case at Crosspoint if we can help it. So how do we help that? We start by just trying to give you a clear articulation of the gospel, and here it is for you. Here's, here's some key words I want you to pay attention to. Number one, Jesus' life was submissive. Jesus lived a submissive life to the Father. Big theologians call this active obedience, that Jesus, as the second Adam, did what the first Adam did not do. That Jesus, in his thought, if you think about your heart, think about your thinking heart, think about your doing heart, think about your affectionate heart, that's the heart, that's the immaterial part of who we are on the inside, the part that you can't see. Every single one of those areas, Jesus never, not once, had one thought go astray, which we would call sin. Now you guys, we may lose a little bit of it on our side when we kind of get used to the gospel, but I'm telling you, when you present that to people that have never heard of Jesus Christ or, or the bits that they know about him, and you say something like that, especially high school kids, they will say, no way. Yeah, thought, emotions, desires, his volition, 100% in line with the Father. And he had to. Jesus had to do this. That's why John had such a hard time, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, because Jesus said to him that I have to go through this. I have to be baptized. It's what I came to do as the second Adam. And Jesus lived a life of perfection. He was in complete submission to his Father. When it comes to Jesus' death, you can think of four words. Hang your your, uh, thoughts on these four words. Number one, Jesus' death was substitutionary. Substitutionary. The Bible says things like this, that he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might know the righteousness of God. Peter says it a different way. He says the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now think about it. Why would Jesus have to be a substitute on behalf of sinners just to get your thinking wheels going? We die because of what? Sin. The wages of sin is? Now, if what I just said about Jesus on the first part, that he was completely submissive to the Father, why did Jesus die? You guys see how it begs this? I'll tell you where Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross when he took your sin and my sin, and what was he doing? He was taking the punishment, and the punishment was Death, that was the wages. That's why Jesus had to die. So Jesus was a substitute. Jesus stepped into our place to die a death that he didn't deserve and a payment that we just simply could not make. Number two, flowing from the idea of substitutionary, is the, uh, the word satisfactory. 
This is where the big word propitiation comes in. And if you're like, what is that? Just think of two words when it comes to propitiation. Anger and satisfaction. God's death on our behalf when he died on the cross completely satisfied the Father's wrath. That would be against us. But one of the psalmists says that if we would just sin once, just once, it would, it would merit eternity in hell. Just one time. Jesus steps into our place. He satisfies the wrath of his Father for us so that we can be called the children of God. We believe in him. The fourth word, this is a word that I want you to add to your vocabulary if you don't know it, because this is the word that shakes the foundations of the universe. I mean, this is the word that gets things going, right? If you guys wanna know the power of the gospel, it's shaming, the word shaming. In Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities that were against us on the cross, and he shamed the principalities and the powers of darkness. There's a theme throughout the Bible, if you chase it, it's the idea of nakedness. And nakedness carries with it the idea of that we are exposed, and exposure before the God whom we must give an account. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13 says that everything will be laid bare before the throne of whom we must give an account. That nakedness carries with it the idea that we are exposed, left to ourselves, without God that there is no hope. But the gospel says that it was substitutionary, that Jesus died in our place, that Jesus satisfied the wrath of the Father, and that Jesus not only satisfied the wrath of the Father, but he disarmed the powers and authorities that are against us so that we're no longer slaves to sin and the devil, but we're slaves to righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's the power of Romans chapter six through eight, if you didn't pick up on it. That's the power that people need who have what the world calls addictions, what the Bible calls enslavements. That's the power that I, I could, there's no way I can ever forgive this person ever, ever. I can never forgive them. I guess I'm going to go to hell according to Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 because I'm not willing to forgive this person. And if I'm not willing to forgive this person, I know the Bible enough to know that God's not willing to forgive me, which questions your DNA and who you are. Are you even a Christian? You need the, you need the power of the gospel. You need the Holy Spirit working in and through and with you for the things that we face in daily life. Number four is Jesus' death also, it was a sympathetic death. Sympathetic. So here's the thing about this. Jesus is the great high priest according to Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 and 15. He's the great high priest if you'll read there because he's the son of God, he's really God the son, he's passed through the heavens and he's able to identify with weaknesses. He's able to identify with grief. He's able to identify as sorrow. Well, how do you know that? Because it points back to Jesus was submissive. Jesus walked the earth. He cried. He wept when people died. He, he wept over the nation of Israel. Jesus, I'm, I'm no doubt convinced that every single human emotion that was not sinful, Jesus experienced. But he's sympathetic towards sinners. That's what draws you here. 
That's why you're here. That's why you gather. That's why you worship. Because you know that life is hard in between the already and not yet. And you know that as life is happening to you and you're going through whatever you're going through, you know you've cried, you know you've tried to talk to others, you've comforted others, you've been comforted by others. And you know life is hard and you know sometimes you just want to throw in the towel. You know, sometimes, you know that's true. That's what Jesus was contemplating in John 12, 27 when he was contemplating sidestepping the cross. But what sustained him for this purpose? I have come. And some of you need to do that this morning. You need to say those same words for this, but what purpose? What purpose could there be in suffering? There's a lot of purposes in suffering. And you need to start by coming to this great and faithful, sympathetic high priest that not only understands the human experience of sorrow and grief, but get me here. He understands your sorrows. And he understands your grief. How do I know that? You know in Isaiah 53.3, it says that Jesus, a man of sorrows, experienced grief. But Isaiah, Isaiah 53.4, the pronouns change to plural. In other words, he knows our sorrows. He knows our grief. What's the context of Isaiah 53? It's the cross. What's Jesus doing on the cross? He's dying for sinners. Not just for sinners, but he's becoming sin for us. And part of that is he's able to identify with anything you've ever gone through. Is that not what attracts you to Jesus Christ? Sometimes you may get so focused in on the wrath of God. Sometimes you may be so focused in on a different aspect of God's, one of his attributes. But you know what it points down to? Because of Jesus, it points down to the love of God. Because the, the love of God means that he would be submissive to the Father. He would de- die a death he didn't deserve. He would be a substitutionary death. It would satisfy the Father's wrath. And it would shame the powers and authorities that are against us. And we're no longer naked in Christ. The demons are naked in Christ. That's what that says in Colossians 2.15. There's been a great transfer, and he's sympathetic towards us. And lastly, his resurrection brought a death blow to the serpent. I love this. Galatians, or, or Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the, uh, the fall, God judges the serpent, he judges the woman, he judges Satan, and he judges Adam. One of the things that he says to Eve is that, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. There will always be this enmity. So from the line of Eve, who came ultimately? Jesus. What are we born into? The line of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Jesus comes. Here's the gospel. To remove the enmity, remove the strife from sinners and God. And what does he do instead? He credits us with God's righteousness. That means that if we're in Christ, if, we, if God takes us, heaven forbid, tomorrow, today, if you're in Christ, guess who Christ, God sees in you, God the Father. He sees Christ. He sees his perfection, not yours, right? My father-in-law used to say this, do you have to be perfect to get into heaven? Think about it theologically. Yes, you do. Begging another question, isn't it? Yes, it is. How am I going to be perfect? He who knew no sin became sin for you 
so that you might know the righteousness of God. Do you have to be perfect to get in heaven? Absolutely. Whose perfection do you have? Christ. You guys, when people are asking those questions, start talking about them. It'll lead to the gospel. So here's what I want to do now. I want to move into communion this morning. Each of you should have one of these. And if you're visiting us, let me just say, because I've been a visitor here, don't do what I did. (laughs) Don't open the bottom like this. The juice will go right in your lap, right? Then you'll have to just play it off, and then everybody's wondering, like, what what happened? So be careful of that. You'll see there's a little little thing of uh, bread in there, and then on the other side you have the, the element of the drink. Here's what I would say to you this morning. If you put uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32 up on the screen for us. You guys, the reason why I took time to explain the gospel the way that I did is because there should be a reverence towards what we do, right? There should be a reverence because 1 Corinthians 11, 27 says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So, so how do you drink the cup in an unworthy manner? There's a couple of things I just want to throw out there. Number one and most obvious, do you truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't care what your mom has said or your dad or your grandma or that faithful Christian that you know that that gives you more assurance of your salvation than the Bible does. You need to wrestle with that in your heart. Are you truly born again? If you're born again, this church, we ask that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not born again, nobody's going to judge in here. Just don't partake because it's that important to us. Okay, just sit there in the quiet. What I would encourage you to do while we do communion is sit there and contemplate the things that I said about Jesus Christ. Talk to someone afterwards where you can have not just a, hey, here's a track, read this, talk to you later, but we'll actually talk to you. I'll go into another room and spend an hour with you if you want. Because that's what's so important is the clarity of the gospel message. Number two, outside of not being a Christian, and I, this is where you're going to have to reflect in your own heart. Are you in communion with the Lord right now? What I mean by that is, if you've been born again to the living hope, your salvation cannot be touched. You're his. You belong to God. But as Christians, sometimes we get caught up, don't we? And we truly do give in to the desires of our flesh. If you're one of those people, and believe me, I'll I'll be the first one to put my hand up. I've been one of those people, and I have to keep trying not to be one of those people. But here's the way out of that. Stop making excuses and start by making confessions this morning. You know, that's that's a beautiful thing, is that you can come to the one who's faithful and just, and you can confess your sins. You can call your sin what he calls it. That's what the word means. And he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So this morning, I'm going to ask to think about that. Are you in a position today where you need to stop what you're doing? Don't become so about the ceremony of this thing, but your relationship to Jesus, where is it today? Some of you need to come back to the Lord. And I would pray in that way, a resolve to live for him again. 
Some of you are, are walking in, in a manner that is not glorifying him, and, and you know that. Why? Because your conscience is rendering you guilty, and your God, God gave you your conscience. You know that because the Holy Spirit brings conviction when the word is preached. And you know that because this whole week, maybe even a season, you've been walking in sin. Get right with the Lord this morning. Can I encourage you there? Can you come to the one who's sympathetic, who knows your sorrow, who understands your grief? Come to him this morning. You don't need a priest to do that. You can do that from the quietness of your chair. If you need help, if you want help talking to someone, we will definitely love to do that. So those are just a couple practical ways that I think we need to slow down and think about what we're doing. And then the rest of this verse in 28 says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The condemnation that comes as a result of coming to the throne of judgment is nullified by the great high priest who came and he took the punishment you deserved at that throne of judgment. He took the full exposure of all your sins upon himself and he died for you. And the, the, the way in which he did that means that he's able to understand what you're going through. He knows not just the church. He knows you in the church individually. So come to him this morning with that reverence of, you already know what's going on in your heart. Get right with the Lord this morning, right? What if church was about that? Oh, out of alignment this week, I'm going to come with these brothers. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to confess my sins to the Lord. I'm going to live for the Lord this week. Not, do you see the worship team up there? See that guy preach? He blew out another microphone. Can you believe we're having this argument about these dogmatic things in church again? Guys, those are all self-serving. Let's keep our eyes focused in on Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. So the bread. Let me say something about the bread. The bread really is his body, his meaning Jesus. On the cross, Jesus' body was broken for us. Don't ever forget about the for you aspect of the cross. And that's what I read in Isaiah 53, or pointed you to. One of the key takeaways from Isaiah 53 is depicted in three and four, where it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne, here's the pronoun change, our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus not only knows your sin, but he knows your sorrows and griefs. Jesus' body was broken for you. So I'm going to ask you now, as we prepare to take uh, the bread, let me pray. I'll pray for both elements. And you guys try to retrieve, retrieve these little packages. But Lord, we do come to you right now. Lord, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Even in this moment, Lord, where we've, we've looked at your gospel, we've looked at the work of your son on our behalf, Lord, we've been challenged to contemplate our lives, 
Father, maybe this will be a moment. I'm just going to be silent just for a moment for someone just to get right with the Lord, back in alignment with him, confessing their sins, Lord. So let's just take a moment to do that just for a minute. Father God, as we seek to do this corporately, communion, this ordinance that you've given to your church, Lord, we remember this morning the bread that was broken, which is your body on our behalf. Lord, and as we partake of the cup as well, we no doubt remember the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins so that we can come to the throne of grace with confidence rather than the throne of judgment with condemnation. So Lord, just be with us this morning as we partake of your, your, bread, your body and, and the cup as well in Jesus' name. So the, the Lord says through Paul, the Holy Spirit says through Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup, which we learned today, is a new covenant of Jesus' blood. During the last Passover with his disciples, Jesus used the cup as a symbol of his blood shed for sin. The shed blood of Christ was the price that Jesus willingly paid for his bride. The payment initiated the new covenant. The old covenant, according to one commentator, was practiced repeatedly by the blood of animals offered by men, but the new covenant has been ratified once and for all by the death of Christ. So in the same way, Paul concludes, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's, let's drink in remembrance of Christ. So may we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me as I ask the worship team to come back up? Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You're a good, good father, Lord, as one modern writer says. Your goodness was on display for sinners as the word became flesh. And he dwelt among a people like us who didn't deserve anything. But you are greater, Lord, than all our sin. From the very beginning, even, even on the onset of Genesis 3.15, we can see already that there's hope for humanity. We are so thankful as a church to live on the other side of the cross. We, be, we began to see as we contemplate Christ and his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, that he truly is the fulfillment. He is the amen that is the fulfillment of all the promises in the scriptures. Lord, may we continue to look to him, keeping our eyes focused and fixed on this author of our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.